Welcome to an Overdrive version of the Russian Rulers History Podcast. Today is a continuation of the Khrushchev Remembers saga about the relationships between the Soviet Union and China and why it degraded so much. Uh, this episode is called Mao and Moscow. I hope you enjoy it. At the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, we exposed Stalin for his excesses, for his arbitrary punishment of millions of honest people, and for his one-man rule, which violated the principle of collective leadership. At first, Mao Zedong took the position that we were right to censure Stalin for his abuses of power. He said that the decisions taken at the 20th Party Congress showed great wisdom. In a way, Mao was right not to underestimate the role of certain people in the leadership who insisted on facing the crimes of the Stalin era head-on, to have remained silent about Stalin's abuses, as Voroshilov, Molotov, and Kaganovich urged, would have been wrong. However, any wisdom we showed at the 20th Party Congress wasn't our own. It was Lenin's wisdom, which we belatedly rediscovered. By giving all the credit to us, Mao was simply trying to win us over with flattery. Mao started registering his own complaints about Stalin. For example, he reproached Stalin for having supported Chiang Kai-shek. He produced evidence to prove that Stalin had harmed the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. I can't remember the exact contents, but I recall that Mao referred to certain letters which Stalin had written to Chiang. Mao also accused Stalin of misunderstanding the nature of the Chinese Revolution. More specifically, Mao said Stalin had underrated and therefore impeded the revolutionary potential of the Chinese working class. Mao was particularly critical of how the Comintern had dealt with China. Stalin, of course, had had overall responsibility for the Comintern, but China's special representative had been Wang Ming, who had worked out most of the Comintern directives for the Chinese party. As I've already mentioned, Wang Ming was a good communist who understood the necessity of preserving unity and friendship between the Soviet Union and China. After the Chinese Revolution prevailed, Mao got rid of Wang Ming in a clever way. He didn't want to stain his hands with Wang Ming's blood. Instead of killing him, Mao arranged for Wang Ming to be elected to the Chinese Central Committee and then immediately banned him from living in China. Wang Ming wasn't allowed to go home to China after the communist victory. He had to stay in Moscow. It's a good thing he did because, later on, if Mao had been able to get his hands on him, Wang Ming probably would have lost his head. Subsequently, we were informed about various attempts on Wang Ming's life. He received packages of food from China. Before eating it himself, he tested the food on his cat, and the cat died. Who would have wanted to poison Wang Ming? The only answer is Mao, Tsai Tong. Just as Stalin had Beria, so Mao had his own butcher, Kang Sheng. Fortunately, Wang Ming was cautious. He must have known what sort of friends would be sending him packages of food. I'm convinced these items were sent by Kang Sheng. Comrade Wang Ming still lives in Moscow, and he continues to maintain friendly relations with our party and our people. 
I always had the impression that Mao's criticisms of Stalin's common turn policies were meant, as much as anything, to justify Mao's shabby treatment of Wang Ming. After having congratulated us for the decisions of the 20th Party Congress, and after delivering, delivering a whole raft of his own criticisms against Stalin, Mao later turned around 180 degrees and started praising Stalin. He realized flattery wouldn't work with us. I think that, secretly, he disapproved all along of our censuring Stalin for his crimes. Why do I think so? Because I believe Mao suffered from the same megalomania Stalin had all his life. He had the same diseased outlook on other people. Like Stalin, Mao never recognized his comrades as his equals. He treated the people around him like pieces of furniture, useful for the time being, but expendable. When, in his opinion, a piece of furniture, or a comrade, became worn out and lost its usefulness, he would just throw it away and replace it. I remember my conversations with Mao around the time of the Conference of Communist Parties. I was struck by how much he sounded like Stalin. These discussions were perfectly cordial, but I was put on my guard by the way Mao talked about the other members of the Chinese Politburo. He painted everything black. He had nothing good to say about anyone. I can't remember exactly what he said about Yao Shaoqi and Chao Enlai, but it wasn't favorable to either of them. In criticizing these people, he gave me names, dates, and specific incidents to back up these negative reports. Then he started in on Chu Tei, who wasn't even a politician. He was a soldier. Everyone knows Chu Tei was a great general and a good communist, but that didn't stop Mao from smearing him. As for Cao Kang, who was already dead by then, you couldn't even mention his name in Mao's presence. The only one of his comrades whom Mao seemed to approve of was Tang Xiaoping. I remember Mao pointing out Tang to me, saying, See that little man there? He's highly intelligent and has a great future ahead of him. I knew nothing about this Tang Xiaoping. I'd heard his name mentioned a few times since the victory of the Chinese people, but never before that. The more I listened to Mao, the more I had to compare him to Stalin. But even though I was spotting similarities between Stalin and Mao, I was still a long way from drawing any final conclusions. I couldn't yet foresee the form in which Mao's character would reveal itself and the tragedies into which he would plunge the Chinese Communist Party. Mao asked me about how our party was coming along. I answered that everything was fine and that we were proceeding with our work in an atmosphere of friendship. I said, though, that some comrades were dissatisfied with the job Bulganin was doing as chairman of the Council of Ministers, and that the question came up from time to time of moving him to another post. I decided to share this information with Mao because I didn't want him to find out about changes in our leadership after his departure from Moscow. If I hadn't said something to him about the situation inside our leadership, he might have regretted having told me about Chinese inter-party matters. Mao asked me whom we were going to appoint as Bulganin's replacement. I replied that the question hadn't been decided yet, but I thought that our comrades were leaning in the direction of Kosygin. Kosygin, said Mao. Who's this Kosygin? 
I told him, and he asked me to introduce him to Kosygin. I was glad that Mao wanted to get acquainted with the man who might head the government of the Soviet Union. I took it as an indication of his desire to strengthen relations between our parties and governments. Mao took Kosygin into a corner and had a talk with him. I think during the Moscow conference, but I'm not sure, we suggested that the task of the international communist movement would be more readily accomplished if we adopted some kind of division of labor. Since the Chinese Communist Party had won a great revolutionary victory in Asia, we thought it would be a good idea for the Chinese to concentrate on establishing closer contacts with the other Asian countries and Africa. We were primarily concerned about India, Pakistan, and Indonesia, three countries with economic conditions similar to China's. As for our own party, it seemed to make sense for us to be responsible for keeping in touch with the revolutionary movements in Western Europe and the Americas. When we presented this idea to the Chinese comrades, Mao Zedong said, No, it is out of the question. The leading role in Africa and Asia should belong to the Soviet Union. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union is the party of Lenin. Its cadres understand Marxism-Leninism more profoundly than anyone else. We of the Chinese Communist Party look to the Soviet Union for guidance. Therefore, I think the CPSU should be the one and only center of the international communist movement, and the rest of us should be united around that center. As we listened to Mao pay recognition to the Soviet Union and the CPSU, we couldn't help suspecting that his thoughts were probably very different from his words. We had the unsettling feeling that sooner or later, friction was bound to develop between our countries and our parties. During the course of the conference, there were some telltale indications of what form that friction might take. When the more than 80 delegations present turned to the possibility of thermonuclear war, Mao gave a speech, the gist of which was as follows. We shouldn't fear war. We shouldn't be afraid of atomic bombs and missiles. No matter what kind of war breaks out, conventional or thermonuclear, we'll win. As for China, if the imperialists unleash war on us, we may lose more than 300 million people. So what? War is war. The years will pass and we'll get to work producing more babies than ever before. This last statement he put more crudely than I've related here. He allowed himself to use an indecent expression, though I don't remember exactly what it was. I was sitting next to Sun Yat-sen's widow. She burst out laughing at Mao's racy language. Mao laughed too, so we all joined in with laughter. But there was nothing funny about what he had said. First of all, Mao should have been more considerate for the people around him. He should have watched his language. More seriously, the content of his speech was deeply disturbing. Except for the one outburst led by Madame Sun Yat-sen, the audience was dead silent. No one was prepared for such a speech. During one of the recesses, Comrade Gomulka expressed his indignation in no uncertain terms. Comrade Novotny said, Mao Zedong says he's prepared to lose 300 million people out of a population of 600 million. What about us? We have only 12 million people in Czechoslovakia. 
We'd lose every last soul in a war. There wouldn't be anyone left to start over again. Everybody except Mao was thinking about how to avoid war. Our principal slogan was, On with the struggle for peace and peaceful coexistence. Yet suddenly, here came Mao Zedong, saying we shouldn't be afraid of war. During his stay in Moscow, there was other evidence that Mao was intent on striking a warlike posture. I remember when I told him about our desire to dissolve NATO and Warsaw Pact military alliances. He expressed his doubts. I don't think you should make such a proposal at this time. Suppose the West accepts. You'll have to withdraw your troops from the German Democratic Republic. As a result, the GDR won't be able to maintain its independence. It will fall apart. Then what will we be? We'll have lost the GDR. This was still in the days when Mao said, we, meaning the socialist camp. He might have had a point about the GDR, but I explained to him that we were publicly proposing to dissolve the two alliances for propaganda purposes. We were sure the United States wouldn't accept right away, and by the time conditions for an agreement on NATO and the Warsaw Pact were ripe, the GDR would have evolved into a more stable country, able to maintain a socialist system on its own. I remember one conversation I had with Mao in Moscow, which illustrates his attitude as it was developing at the time. Not long before our meeting, Defense Minister Zhukov made a public statement based on a policy line worked out in the government. The statement warned that the Soviet Union would strike a counterblow against any aggressive force which attacked a socialist country, that is, an ally of the Soviet Union. I'd made a similar statement, but Mao diplomatically chose to comment only on what Zhukov had said. I think Zhukov was wrong in that statement of his, said Mao. What do you mean? If we don't take the position he stated, the aggressive forces will destroy us bit by bit, first one country, then another, and another, until they finish us off. That's what the imperialists are bent on doing. They want to divide and conquer. Dulles has said it in so many words. Beside Comrade Mao, what Zhukov said didn't represent just his point of view. He was reflecting the view of our government and of the Central Committee. We believe we have no choice but to take the line Zhukov expressed. Not so, replied Mao. If the Soviet Union is attacked from the West, you shouldn't engage the enemy in battle. You shouldn't counterattack. You should fall back. What do you mean, fall back? I mean retreat and hold out for a year, two years, even three years. Uh, where exactly do you suggest we retreat to? And why should we retreat? To do so would, in, would mean inviting defeat. Not necessarily, said Mao. Look at World War II. Didn't you retreat all the way to Stalingrad, then mobilize your forces into a counteroffensive and then advance all the way to Berlin? Of course we did, but our retreat wasn't motivated by either tactical or strategic considerations. The enemy drove us back. The enemy forced us to retreat. You, Comrade Mao, seem to be one of those who believes that Stalin lured Hitler deep into Russian territory and then crushed him. Or that Kutuzov deliberately let Napoleon get all the way to Moscow before beating him. Neither was true. 
Stalin simply wasn't able to turn the tide of the German invasion until Stalingrad, just as Kutuzov couldn't defeat the French until they reached Borodino. If you want to go into this subject in more detail, I suggest you read War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. In point of fact, we were simply unprepared for a war against Hitler. And our unpreparedness almost turned out to be fatal. There's no way we could count on being able to retreat for three years and withstand an invasion. I don't agree, said Mao. If you fell back to the Urals, then we Chinese could enter the war. I looked at him closely, but I couldn't tell from his face whether he was joking or not. Comrade Mao, the next war won't and wouldn't be anything like World War II. Today, the Americans have so many atomic bombs, they don't know what to do with them all. We, too, have nuclear weapons and are rushing ahead to equip our armed forces with them. The next war won't begin with an en enemy launching an invasion across our border. It will begin with a missile or bomb attack on our major administrative and industrial centers. Therefore, it's our policy to arm ourselves with enough weapons to inflict the same damage on our enemy as he can inflict on us. Mao wasn't convinced. Later on, he would begin to torpedo our policy of peaceful coexistence, claiming outright that it was unLeninist and bound to give way to pacifism. But for the time being, he simply expressed his doubts. Well, I hope you enjoyed that reading. Uh, we'll have another one on Wednesday, be more regularly scheduled, and also we'll have our regularly scheduled uh, episode number 97 coming next Sunday or Monday. I'm already pretty far in with the script, so I just hope you enjoy all of that. Please keep the questions coming uh, for episode number 100. I'm getting a great list from uh, the listeners who've been posting up on RussianRulers.podhoster.com and also at our Facebook news group, the... Uh, fan club page, the Russian Rulers History Podcast. So, as always, Das Vidanya, Ispasiba Bolshoya.